How's everybody doing today? Uh, welcome to Element. Happy New Year. Uh, my name's Eric Jafrudi, and I'm one of the elders here, and I, I'd like to welcome you. Um, we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, feel free to use one of those. If you don't own one, you can keep it. And we have sermon notes on each of the communion tables uh, in the front and in the back. Uh, I have a quick announcement on January 15th. That is when we are starting the 815 service, January 15th, as well as the gospel class. And the gospel class is an eight-week class that goes through the basics of Christian doctrine. And we'll also talk about you know, specifically our, our views here at Element and the whole idea of gospel community and how important that is. And that's also a prerequisite to uh, membership here at Element. So uh, if you're not familiar with that, if you've never uh, attended a gospel class, I would encourage you to do that as well. So why don't you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. And it says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that today that you would give us uh, a deeper idea of what that life can look like. And Lord, that you would uh, show us how we might actually experience the life that you have for us, that we might become the people that you have called us to be. So uh, we pray that you would speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, uh, how many of you overate during the holidays? Anybody? Yeah, yeah I, I know I did. Uh, now that the holidays are over, though, it seems like everybody is you know, wanting to get in shape. Just driving here this morning, there are people jogging and walking. And you know, after the Christmas holiday, the same thing. You know, there, there are people out. And uh, you see all these ads on TV, Weight Watchers and everything else. And you see all the signs, you know, are you ready to get in shape for the new year? Well, the new year is a time of reflection, and it's a time for uh, it's an opportunity to make a change, to do something different, to achieve a different result. But more than just reflecting on our physical fitness or maybe even our financial fitness, I think it's a perfect time to take stock of one of the most important or the most important aspect of our life, and that is our spiritual fitness. And so as another year has passed, the question that I have for each of us today is, are we ready to get in shape for our new life? Are you ready to get in shape for your new life? And I'll explain what I mean by that. This question goes deeper than just any end-of-the-year reflection. It requires that every Christian examine whether or not they are experiencing the life that God has called us to and that he has promised each one of us. And as believers, most of us know what the Scripture says about this great salvation that we have, how God in Christ has redeemed his people from the kingdom of Satan, of sin and death, and delivered us to the kingdom of his Son, and his righteousness and life eternal. And we read in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, we had just finished a short series on the saints where we looked at St. Patrick and St. Mary and St. Nick just before Christmas. And as we looked at those saints of old, we also saw that God has called each one of us as believers, saints, that we are set apart as holy and righteous because of Jesus' righteous life that was credited to us and the penalty of our sinful life that was paid for in his body on the cross. And God has given us now this new position and this new identity in Christ. 
But we also see that salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sins and righteousness credited, as amazing and as wonderful as that is. It's more than just life in heaven after death on this planet. Salvation is us being united to Christ in such an intimate and powerful way that His life, by His Spirit, lives in us and moves us. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11-12, it says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And Jesus told us in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then Paul, in Romans 5.10, he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Salvation is a life where God forms and He shapes us into His people that are fit for His kingdom. People who reflect His glory in all that we do. Salvation begins now in this life and in this body. It's an eternal life here and now in the sense that we are forever united with our eternal God the moment we believe and the moment that we are made alive by His powerful Spirit. So those who understand their identity in Christ, they realize that this also must be reflected in their activity. We've been redeemed and we have been set free now to actually become holy and righteous by God's grace and by God's power. He intends that we display the power of God in everything that we do and how we live. We're to live as if Jesus were living in our bodies, in our circumstances, with our family, with our jobs, in going through our trials and our temptations. And why? Because He is. He is living in us. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. But how many of us are really experiencing the life that God intends for us? A life that is shaped by His Spirit, shaped into the people whose character reflects His Son, Jesus. That's what I mean when I ask the question, are we in shape for our new life? You see, the gospel is good news about this new life. It's the good news that God's kingdom has come to earth in Christ. We read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news, as Jesus preached it, is that It's now possible for ordinary people like you and I to live in the presence and under the power of God. God's reign on earth has begun with His people living under His rule and under His authority and by His power. This new life in the kingdom of God of which Jesus said you must be born again to experience it. God has made a way. He's given us everything we need to live for Him and to be like Him and to represent Him in this world. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says that 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Now, on Christmas Eve, Aaron, he had talked about how Jesus was, in a sense, God's logo, the perfect representation and the perfect expression of his character. And in a similar way, we are to be logos or icons of Jesus, reflecting that image of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul was saying to the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, when he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Has Christ been formed in us? Does the form of our character reflect the salvation that we have received, where the fruit of the Spirit becomes the natural character of our thoughts and our actions? Are we in shape for our new life? You know, this whole idea of new life, it's it's easier when you're a new believer because everything is is fresh and new and and life is changing. I had the opportunity to spend the the holiday week with my father-in-law. And through a series of circumstances in his life uh, over this past year, at the age of 75, he came to faith in Christ. And it was such a blessing. He was spending time with Terry and I, and we'd sit around the table, and he was just saying, my life is just so different. Now that I have Jesus in my heart, and you talk about having Jesus in his heart, and we would just smile, and we kind of giggle to ourselves. And, and, and he would say, you know, I'm sorry if I'm just talking too much about having Jesus in my heart, but, you know, he just made such a difference. At 75, he lived 75 years before he came to know Christ, and his life is new. He's experiencing the kingdom of God in his life. But for those of us who have actually been around for a while, maybe we've been saved for a while, and we understand the hope and the calling of of this new life, if we're completely honest, many of us may say that we're disappointed beyond the trivial things like, you know, our physique or our financial status or our relationship status. We're disappointed in the people that we have become or maybe that we have not become in our failure to be that everything Jesus calls us to be. And I speak from personal experience here. I received Christ 30 years ago at the age of 18, That's a pretty long time, I think, to walk with God. And you would think that for much of that time, my life would be a shining light as a representation of Jesus in this world. And I do have some amazing stories of what God has done in my life and and how he's changed me. But I have to admit, for much of that time, I was also disappointed, disappointed in just how little I reflected Jesus in my everyday life. Sometimes I was even bewildered and disillusioned by how I seemed to sin so much and love God so little. And I came to realize, you know what, I was not the only one with this problem. This is actually a pretty common experience in the church today. What's missing for those who desire to follow Christ but frequently find themselves entangled and mastered by sins that they know that they should be free of? Or what's missing for those who just accept the fact that certain aspects of their sinful nature or their personality will never change? Or those who, after constant failure, doubt the reality and the power of the gospel. I mean, you can get to a point where disappointment turns to disillusionment, and disillusionment can turn to doubt. And if not doubts about God, then doubts about ourselves and the genuineness of our faith. And you think to yourself, well, I know that God is able, and there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not even saved, right? I mean, you can have those kinds of doubts. 
But let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe the gospel? You know, we live with our failures and we focus on our shortcomings so much of the time that after a while, many of us don't really believe that we can really, really become anything different than we already are. That our nature and that our instincts can actually be like Jesus's. Yet that's the gospel. And that's what we're commanded to be. Is it really true? Is it really true? Can we really be different where our character is described by love, joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control? What if we really believed that that was possible for our lives and for everybody else who, who would believe? Would you be excited about that? I mean, would it give you hope for a different kind of life? Would it, want you, would it, want you to, would it make you want to tell others about that life-changing power? Would it change your vision for your family or for your workplace or for your community or for this world? This is the gospel. This is the good news. The question is, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? What if I told you that based on my experience, it is really true? And you don't have to take my word for it. You can experience it for yourself, and you can do that today. How? Let me tell you. How does God shape us into his image? How does it happen? We see in Scripture that it's the result of both God's working as well as our working. And the Apostle Paul, he makes that clear in several places in his letters to the churches. In Romans 13, 14, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Spiritual formation into Christ's likeness, it doesn't just happen to us without our effort. It requires our active participation, and we must apply effort and cooperate with God's Spirit working in us. We see this clearly in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 15. The Apostle Paul, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, he's not saying here that there's any work of any kind that we can do to save us from our sins. He's made that abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But he's referring to their transformation into Christ's image, he says earlier in chapter 2 of Philippians, in verses 1 through 8, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So how do we get in shape 
for our new life. It requires trusting, it requires testing, and it requires training. We see in Scripture three essential aspects of this process, all of which are inseparable from the others. First, trusting in and interacting with the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, it's the testing of our faith through trials and everyday problems. And number three, it's the training, training in the disciplines of Christ-likeness or the spiritual disciplines. These have been called by some the golden triangle for the spiritual life or for spiritual growth because they are as precious as gold to the disciple. Uh, And each aspect here is as essential to the whole process as three sides of a triangle are. And no one of the three will give us a heart and life like Christ without the other two. And none of them can take the place of any other. But all of them together is what brings us into ever-increasing Christ-likeness. So the first, trusting in the Holy Spirit is the first side of that triangle. And this is opening up our lives to the interaction with the Spirit of God that's living in us. Paul points this out in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He's our all-powerful helper that Jesus promised would come to strengthen us and to comfort us and to teach us and to guide us. Jesus said in John 14, in verses 16 and 17, He said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. And in verse 26, He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit gently waits for our invitation for him to act upon us and to to be with us and act with us and act for us. You can always recognize him by the way he moves us towards what Jesus would be and what Jesus would do as we face the circumstances and the decisions of our daily lives. In John 16, in verses 13 through 15, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it manifests He manifests himself both inwardly and outwardly. Outwardly, by the gifts of the Spirit distributed by God's grace, they enable us, he enables us to perform things that would be outside of our our normal power. And he, he does that for the building up of the body of Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and, and Romans chapter 14. And the effects of the, and the of these gifts, they just clearly go beyond what we could accomplish in our own strength. But they don't necessarily signify what's going on inside of our heart. It's the outward manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the sign of a transformed character. It's when the deepest attitudes and the dispositions of our heart become those of Jesus. And if that takes place, it's only because we've learned to let the Spirit live through us. The fruit of love, of joy, of peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's the outcome of Jesus living in us through His Spirit. 
It's our direct and personal interaction with God, with Christ, through His Spirit that brings about this transformation. The second side of the triangle is the testing of our faith through faithful acceptance of trials and everyday problems. The testing of our faith through everyday trials and problems. Trials and problems are obviously not something that we pray for, that we hope for, but we know that they're inevitable for each of us. And by enduring trials and everyday problems with patience, we gain assurance that God is ruling in our hearts. Jesus' brother James, he wrote to the church instructing them in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. He doesn't say if you face trials, but when you face them. They are going to come. It's inevitable. There's no doubt that James learned this from his brother Jesus during their years of family life together. and By watching him do business as the in the public eye as a village carpenter. Everything that Jesus taught us to do was something that he had to practice daily in circumstances just like ours. In the trials of daily existence, in family and village life, he had to practice these things, and he verified the sufficiency of God's care to those who simply trust and obey him. And it was probably in retrospect that James finally understood who his older brother really was and also came to realize the power of patience in the events of our everyday life. According to James, this power would be manifested primarily by a, a controlled tongue and an inoffensive tongue. In James 3.2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So let me say again that each side of this, of this triangle is essential and cannot be separated. And so we have trusting in the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial. We have patiently enduring testing of our faith through trials and through everyday problems. And the third side of this triangle is training. Training in the disciplines for Christ's likeness or training in spiritual disciplines. And this, this is the area where I believe many in the church today have lost sight of the practices that would have been common to the Jews, that would have been practiced by Jesus, and that would have been practiced by the early church for centuries. And I have to say that there are very few new revelations in my life where an idea, whether it be old or new, has made such a dramatic and lasting impact on my relationship with God than an understanding and the proper practicing of spiritual disciplines. And beyond the few common critical activities that, that we all should know about, studying scripture and praying and, and maybe quiet time and, and, and having fellowship, I was never taught about other activities, many of which are mentioned in scripture, that can be instrumental in shaping and forming my soul to become more like Jesus. First, I didn't really understand that the role my body played in my spiritual life. You know, I think that most of us tend to separate our spiritual and mental life from what we do with our physical bodies. But in reality, we are whole persons consisting of spirit, of mind, and body. And the activity that we perform in our bodies will shape and form our minds and our spirits accordingly. If we seek to constantly gratify the emotions and the feelings and the appetites of our bodies, our, our spirit and our will will remain in the deformed condition of sin rather than being formed into the image of Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 6. 
Paul says in verses uh, 12 and 13, he says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your bodies to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We know that we have been created in, in God's image, and this includes our bodies as the focal point for how we live and how we interact with God and the rest of creation. And so our body is a good thing that should be cherished and it should be properly cared for, not as our master, but as a servant of God. But for most people, their body governs their life. And as a Christian, our body can actually be a major obstacle to doing what we know is right and good. And it's often the source of sin in our life. And this is the natural result of placing ourselves at the center of our universe, in the place of God. And the body becomes the primary source of pleasure and gratification, which ultimately leads to the worship of body and sensuality. All of this to say that the transformation of our whole being into Christ-likeness has to consider the retraining of our body. As it matures, our, our body increasingly takes on the qualities and the nature of our inner life, of what's going on inside. And it becomes a major part of the hidden source from which our life immediately flows. Formed in sin, our character and its body is set against God's ways, and it can operate pretty much on its own. And when our heart, though, and our will and our spirit comes to this new life in God, those old sinful programs, most of which are in, its, are in our body and, and in its members, they're still running contrary to our new heart. And this is when we find that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, like Jesus said in Matthew 26. It's when we end up doing the very things that we hate, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Yet because God's Spirit is dwelling in our bodies, we can begin to increasingly do the things that Jesus did and that Jesus taught. And we can move to the place where both our spirit is willing and our flesh can become stronger because God has occupied it. And this is when we've presented our bodies as slaves of righteousness. As Paul instructed in Romans 6, in 6.19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. How do we do this? This is where the training and spiritual disciplines come in. This is where they're critical. And it's a little ironic here because the term spiritual discipline is really kind of a misnomer, if you will. I mean, if you think about it, pretty much every activity that we would consider a spiritual discipline requires a physical activity that must be done with our body. Think about something as mental, for example, as memorizing Scripture. You know, so many, so many people say, well, I just can't memorize Scripture. How do you do it? I'm going to tell you how you do it. Step one, you find a chair. Step two, you, you take some crazy glue. You put it on the chair. Step three, you take your butt, you put it on the chair, and you sit there for about 30 seconds. Step four, you open up your Bible, and you start to read. It's that simple. It's a physical activity. It's something that any one of us can do. But what happens here is that it benefits us in such a way, spiritually, because it enables us to do something that we couldn't ordinarily do. 
We can take something that's easy for any one of us to do, and the benefit of it will be something that we couldn't normally do. It will allow us to recall and to meditate upon and to act upon God's word as we face the circumstances and the people that God brings to us. It helps us to act and to be as as Jesus would if he were walking in my shoes. And so it is with all of the so-called spiritual disciplines. What are they? I mean, there is no complete list because they really could be any activity that we engage in by our direct effort and by our power now. That's, that's something that we can do now that will enable us to do something in the future that we don't have the power to do right now. And this is the whole idea of training versus trying. Training versus trying. So many times, you know, maybe we hear a message and we're moved and we're inspired to just really try harder to be like Christ. Um, but, and this is good, and obviously we need to do that. But without training, without the proper training, it will not make a significant difference in our life. It will ultimately lead to frustration in the end. As an example, we have somebody who comes to this church, Ethan Brown. He's actually in the nursery right now. And uh, he is one of those ultra-marathoners. And I just saw recently that he had finished the Chimera 100. If you don't know what that is, that's a 100-mile run. I don't know why anybody would really want to do that. Most of us can't fathom why that, you know, somebody would really want to do it. But that's incredible to me, 100 miles. Now, let's assume for a moment that all of you became inspired today and you decided that you were going to run 100 miles tomorrow. How many, how many of you think you could do it tomorrow? Anybody in here? Other than Ethan, I don't think any of us could really do that. Um, but let's say... You started doing something tomorrow like uh, just walking maybe one mile or maybe you started you know, just jogging around the block. That's within your power to do tomorrow. And if you were really motivated to run 100 miles, after a while you would, you would develop the ability to go longer and to go farther. Ultimately, you would be able to run 100 miles. I mean, some of you doubt it and say, oh, I don't think that's, that's possible. But it's true. And that's the way it is with anything that's worth accomplishing in this life. This is a principle of general human life. Speaking a new language, uh, becoming a surgeon, uh, playing a musical instrument. It's a general principle of human life. And this principle applies to our spiritual life as well. We read in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love is patient and kind. And so we try harder to be loving by acting more patiently and more kindly and we quickly fail. The trying is good and it's necessary, but we, we won't see much progress until we actually advance in love itself, becoming people that are ready and willing to secure the good of others. Without love itself growing in us, merely trying to act loving, it will lead to despair and defeat. We see this principle in what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and through 10. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We also see this in what Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Disciplines for the spiritual life, they are a means to our goal of becoming people that naturally live and act as Jesus would. They're not holy and righteous activities in and of themselves. They're only a means to the power and the grace of God uh, that, that help us to become more righteous people, more fit for the kingdom of God. They're like the sails on a ship that we must raise in order that we may catch the wind of God's Spirit. For without His Spirit, without His power and grace, we won't move or we won't grow. But we have to raise those sails. The true test of spiritual maturity is not how many disciplines a person practices, but whether or not a person can and will do the right thing at the right time and for the right reason. This is a person who has learned to love God with his whole heart and soul and mind and strength and who has learned to love his neighbor as themselves. If we could do this without the spiritual disciplines, then there'd be no reason to practice them. Jesus was the master of the spiritual life and of his own physical body. Jesus, coming in the flesh, he took on the frailty and the weakness of our humanness so that we might, he might identify with our struggles and destroy the power of Satan, sin, and death through his death for us. If he needed to practice the disciplines with, on, uh, during his time on earth, how much more do we need to do them? So you're saying, okay, I got it. I get the message. I need to practice spiritual disciplines. But what are the things that I should be doing? Well, the disciplines, again, can be virtually anything that trains us for godliness. Anything that we use in daily life to train us for godliness. It could be things like sitting in traffic or selecting the longer line at the grocery store. Uh, it could be just making sure that we get enough sleep so that we have the energy to properly care for the people around us. Actually, it's going to take some effort on your part to figure out how and what disciplines you need to practice. And only you can figure that out for yourself. Because although there may be some similarities between you and I, chances are that the weaknesses that I struggle with are going to be different than yours. And so the disciplines that we would need to practice would be different as well. But I can offer you the following direction. Basically, sin can be divided into two categories. You have sins of omission and you have sins of commission. Sins of omission involve not doing the things that God says that we should be doing. And sins of commission involve doing the things that God prohibits. Likewise, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, you have two basic categories as well. You have disciplines of engagement and you have disciplines of abstinence. Now, here's a list of some disciplines that have been practiced throughout the ages. You see that on the screen there. You have things like study over on the right-hand side. These are disciplines of engagement, study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession. Most of us are familiar with many of the disciplines of engagement. And these are things that we can do individually and things that are also 
uh, possible to do in, in community, like in gospel community, which is great. In the disciplines of engagement, they involve us intentionally doing certain things. But on the left, you have things like solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice. Secrecy, that, that's doing, it's, it's giving gifts or doing acts of kindness to people in secret. It's what Jesus talked about, not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, where only God knows what you're doing, so you're not getting recognition for it. And so these are disciplines of abstinence where we intentionally abstain from doing certain things. And here's how this works. Let's say uh, if I struggle with boasting or I struggle with pride, that's a sin of commission. I could be helped by practicing a discipline of abstinence. I could be helped by practicing solitude or silence or maybe secrecy, all disciplines of abstinence. If I struggle with a sin of omission, then I can usually be helped by a discipline of engagement. For example, if my love and my joy in the Lord is lacking, then I may be spiritually weak. And so I could practice the disciplines of study and of worship and celebration all disciplines of engagement. Abstinence and engagement, they're like the breathing out and the breathing in of our spiritual lives. And we require disciplines for both in order for us to grow spiritually. And no, no doubt, most believers in the church today have more experience with the disciplines of engagement than they do with the disciplines of abstinence. I mean, teaching on the disciplines of abstinence has been largely missing in the modern church. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when we see that we have widespread problems facing believers today with lack of self-control and addictive behaviors. Let me just say a few words about how the disciplines go with grace in this process. Peter said that we are to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is when God is acting in our life to accomplish something that we can't do in our own strength. And the scriptures are clear about this. With, without Jesus, we can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. But it's also true that if we do nothing, it will be without Jesus. If we, as we've seen, spiritual growth, it requires our effort as well as God's. And we have to realize that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning not effort, but earning. And we shouldn't have any idea that we can earn favor with God by our efforts. But God commands us to grow in grace and to apply ourselves in activities that can change us. And that's where the disciplines come in. And we have to make plans to grow in Christ's likeness. Not to do so is to plan to stay just as we are. So we have this golden triangle. And we see this golden triangle in Jesus' life. As well, If you read in the margins of Scripture, you see in Jesus' life and ministry, he spent much time alone with the Father, disciplining himself for ministry. And perhaps one of the best examples is found during Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says that the Spirit immediately, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, 
It says that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was tested, and he was tempted by Satan. And he was strengthened through his training with solitude and silence and he was in nature with the wild animals, and he was fasting, and he, he was surely praying and meditating on God's words, which he would have committed to memory. Do you think that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this place to make him vulnerable or to make him stronger? I, I believe that the Holy Spirit led him there to make him stronger. I believe that this was a place of strength and strengthening for Jesus, not a place of weakness. And I believe that it can be the same for you and I. Maybe you're disappointed with who you've become or who you haven't become. Maybe you're frustrated with your spiritual growth in Christ. There are things that you can do that are within your power today that can begin that transformation process. G.K. Chesterton, he said this. He said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. Start applying the principles of this golden triangle to your daily life. Don't worry. You won't become perfect for at least three to four months. I promise. I promise. No, really, you won't become perfect, but you will become more like Christ. I'm certain that you will experience a deeper sense of God's presence and his power to help you become more like Jesus. There is hope for real change. The gospel is really true. God will make us fit for his kingdom if we are ready to get in shape for our new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit, Lord, that lives in us and that gives us the power, Lord, and and what we need to change. Father, we thank you that even though we don't desire the, the trials and the temptations that we face in daily life, that by your power, we can patiently endure them and we can learn how to be strong and to to be steadfast by your Spirit. And Father, we thank you that you have given us a means of training so that we can become more like Jesus, so that we can learn to be more like you. Father, we thank you for your power that works in our life. Lord, as we come to communion, I pray that we would remember your body, Jesus, that was broken for us as we take that cracker and we remember you gave your life for us and your blood was shed. And as we dip that cracker in the wine or the grape juice, we remember that it's only because of you and the price that you paid that we have this new life. We thank you that we have been redeemed, that we can now live in your kingdom as your people and that we can have a hope or that we can be different, that we can shine as lights for you in this world, God. So I pray for each one of us here, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would give us a vision for our new life, that we could bring you glory and honor. May we worship you this morning, Lord, as we sing, as we give our gifts and offerings, as we fellowship with one another. We do all things for your glory and for your honor. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.